BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Actors and writers in Hollywood are still on strike. They're pushing for better wages, and they also want protections against the existential threat AI could pose to their careers. Writers don't want studios to train AI to do their work, and actors are worried that their image or their likeness could be used or manipulated without their consent. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. This is a moment of history that is a moment of truth. That's Fran Drescher, who's the president of SAG-AFTRA, which represents actors. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines and big business. Hollywood is not all high-paid, glamorous celebrities, though. A lot of the screenwriters or actors who play minor roles or stunt doubles are actually struggling. I'm Sasha Koka, and this is the California Report magazine. Today on our show, we're going to peek behind the Hollywood curtain at the folks whose work to make the magic happen often goes unrecognized. You know... I guess I wish people knew that the the job existed. First up, we're going to hear more about what it's actually like to be a striking actor right now. And we'll learn about how folks are pulling together to support the effort. Some businesses are backing the strike by offering discounts to union members. And there's one woman who's trying to make sure that while strikers are out on the picket lines, they can get enough to eat. My union siblings, there are no starving actors. No, we are going to starve out the execs. That's what we're going to do. Christina Wong has been encouraging fellow actors to use the World Harvest Food Bank in Los Angeles. Christina is a comedian. She's appeared on television and on stage. She's also a Guggenheim Fellow, a Doris Duke artist, and was a 2022 finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Drama for her play Christina Wong, Sweatshop Overlord. She's also one of the actors on strike. Hey there, Christina. Hello. So tell us, how has it been for you as an actor on strike? How has the strike affected your life personally? It's a little scary because I'm not sure when I will be working as um, an actor on screen again. But I've been a member of SAG-AFTRA for over 20 years. I've never made my health insurance minimum. In order to make health insurance as a SAG-AFTRA member, you need to make $27,000 in SAG union work. 
a year. And uh, while I work a lot, I actually work more as a performance artist <laughs> than a screen actor. And I also, you know, I have just like a hundred million jobs a year to make this work. But I know a lot of other actors in the same position. There are a lot of members who are living way below the poverty line who are underinsured. So this is something that people don't realize when you think about actors, you don't think about the 87% of our union that's not making a living doing this. So there's a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, but I'm I'm really heartened to see how folks are coming together and how much they really believe truly that we cannot compromise in our demands for the strike. You actually started going to the food bank using the World Harvest Food Bank before the strike. Yeah. So I I was a huge fan of this food bank. For $55 or four hours of volunteer work, you can get a heaping cart of groceries at World Harvest Food Bank. Um, and anyone can take advantage of this. Anyone can walk in and volunteer or walk in and and make this donation and leave with groceries. And my friends and I, we usually like plan a whole trip together and we split it six ways. And my grocery budget is usually less than $50 a month. It's an experience that I never thought a food bank could be, which is really filled with dignity. You go in and you get to choose what you want to put in your cart. And then when the strike happened, I approached Glenn Corrado, who's the CEO of World Harvest. And I said, would you help me keep my union siblings fed? Um, and offer them groceries. And and he was like, let's not do this small. Let, let's offer them the whole giant cart when they come by whenever uh, up until the strike ends. Hello, everybody. It's me, Christina Wong, 2022 Pulitzer Prize finalist in drama, food bank influencer. And um, recently, the face of the most insane offer to WGA and SAG after members who are currently on strike um, who are being starved out. What's happening during the strike is you show your SAG or WGA card um, uh, and that fee, that donation fee is waived. And you can come in and out all during the strike and get all the groceries that you need. And you're using social media to try to encourage people to come in. What's the message that you have for them? My message is like, if you've never used a food bank before or or maybe you don't feel like you're at need, this is here for you. It's a resource. There's a lot of embarrassment about seeking help or using a food bank. There's a lot of stereotypes that a very specific type of destitute person should be the only person who uses a food bank, but there's no shame in it. This is about keeping you healthy while you're picketing, while you're looking for other work to keep you going. Um, this is about dignity. Tell us how the World Harvest Food Bank works. What what kind of food can you get there? You're assigned a cart and the cart is filled sort of with like catch of the day or little treats. These are all things that have to actually move their way out of the food bank. A lot of the donors currently are uh, airlines that have stuff that's next uh, to expiry date or things that they just don't serve on the airplane anymore. Sometimes a pallet of food on its way to Costco gets dented and Costco or whatever store, they refuse the pallet. So like I had like pounds of tilapia for months uh, once because of dented pallet at Costco. Um, but it's all fresh food. And after you fill up all the produce and bread that you want in your cart, then the staff there will fill it up with proteins. Just kind of varies, but you will get things in all the food categories. It's just not guaranteed what exactly it will be. And you will get a lot of it. Can't find sriracha sauce? 
we have a knockoff. No, this is sweet chili sauce. Sweet like chili sauce. This is like Mayfloy. We got Mayfloy. chocolate. Hey, it's always Christmas at World Harvest, folks. It's always Christmas. Advent calendar, milk chocolate treats. Is there something, is there like a, a hidden gem that you've discovered there that you were really surprised to find at the food bank? Uh, like a giant bucket of honey. Before the pandemic, we got, we were getting sashimi grade fish because he actually has donors that are some of the Asian grocers. At one point in the pandemic, he had uh, all this coffee from Starbucks and all these Girl Scout cookies because Starbucks didn't have customers coming in and Girl Scouts weren't selling cookies. This is not guaranteed. This is not all the time, but sometimes <laughs> certain shipments show up and he doesn't have room for it and it ends up in your cart. Christina, what's most surprised you since you started publicizing that the food bank is available to, to strikers? I'm surprised how many people are using um, this offer. We did not know how many people would take advantage of it because it is just one location in Arlington Heights in Los Angeles. LA is quite spread out, but we are getting over 100 union members a day who for the very first time are coming in and using this. Hello, this is? Union Power. Union Power. I'm Christine Robert. Christine Robert, we've seen you on TV. Yeah. Somewhere. Yes, and Christine, what are you taking home? Um, I actually only take, they load up the cart with yes. just basic stuff. I have very particular diet, so I can't really eat everything. So I'm taking three sparkling waters, some salt, and I'll take- I've heard you've gotten some pushback from people who've been upset that, you know, Hollywood actors and writers are getting free groceries instead of people who might be more in need. What do you say to critics like that? So there's like the stereotype that people, the, the only people who should be using food banks are people that look like they've walked out of like a Dorothea Lang photo. But increasingly, we are living in a country where you have more and more middle class people who are relying on the food bank to make sure that they have um, their basic food needs and nutritional needs met. And so when I am meeting actors uh, who are coming in the food bank, a lot of them are a little shy or reluctant. Um, there's a lot of pride. Some people don't want to be filmed when they're in there. Some people are so grateful and happy that this um, exists. Uh, a lot of, like one guy said to me, this is my last time coming in here, I promise you. And I said, even if it's not, you are welcome to come here. Like we are used to thinking of food banks as being shameful places, places that indicated we have failed. Um, I would like to say you've not failed. These systems have failed us. These systems that, <laughs> that we're supposed to ensure that if you work a certain amount of hours, you work this hard, you should be able to take care of yourself. But increasingly, we are not in that world. But it's, for me, a way of saying to them, you are cared for, you are worthy of care, and this is our way of supporting you in that fight, acknowledging that we see it, and telling you to keep going. What do you think it's going to take to get writers and actors back to work in Hollywood? I think some of these executives that make these hundreds of millions of dollars to just say, you know what, I don't need to be a multimillionaire. The money is there. It's just distributed completely the wrong way. So I think the execs are going to have to have this come to faith moment where they realize, listen, we can't make money without these people. So we are going to have to share the insane amount of money that we have. And I'm hoping that as 
you know, as people react in shock to the fact that we have a food giveaway for actors and writers, that what people are hopefully getting at is the reality of what it means to survive in these professions and how reasonable these demands really are. And are you hoping that, you know, if people get sick enough of watching reruns streaming, you know, the consumers will also be pushing for the strike to end and that that might help move things? I hope so. I mean, I, I, this is hot strike summer. And I think this is a real moment to kind of reconcile the worth of our labor. And if we don't win this strike, we will basically be putting ourselves into extinction. So that to me is what I hope consumers also understand. This is not just about a bunch of actors and writers who want more millions of dollars. You know, we just want to be able to maybe get a chance at being middle class. I would love to make $28,000 next year as an actor, right? Like that's that's a pretty low bar so that I can get my health insurance. Um that's all we're asking for is is to is to just be able to make uh, a living when we do the work. Christina Wong, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. That was Christina Wong, who's one of the actors on strike in Hollywood right now, talking about her work to help struggling actors and writers get groceries from L.A.'s World Harvest Food Bank. For their part, the group that represents studios says they remain committed to reaching a deal with both unions to end the strike. And we should note that the hosts, reporters, and producers here at KQED, where we produce the California Report, are members of SAG-AFTRA. But we're in a different bargaining unit, so we're not on strike. Economists say the strikes could cost the California economy at least three and a half billion dollars. And all kinds of people are feeling the squeeze. A lot of them either work in entertainment directly or they're employed by companies that serve the industry. And when it comes to movies and TV, there are a lot of people not working on sets right now who have jobs you might not think about. Makeup artists, electricians, truck drivers, pet trainers, even food stylists. In a TV series like Mad Men, it's somebody's job to pick out the mid-century modern furniture, to design the costumes. And someone was in charge of those cocktail party weenies in grape jelly that are in the script. Sugarberry has been selling hams for 30 years at a fairly steady rate while doing everything they could to create sales. Or the canned ham in season four. The winner of the ham battle is you. Our hams are worth fighting for. Why didn't you pitch that two months ago? It's good on its own. Behind any food on screen, there's a person or a team of people researching it, making it, keeping it fresh on set, take after take. They make food a character. For her series, California Foodways, reporter Lisa Morehouse visited a set before the writers and actors strike began. She wanted to learn more about the often invisible work of a Hollywood food stylist. I meet Melissa McSorley in a distinctly unglamorous part of Santa Clarita, an industrial park turned soundstage. Melissa's unloading her SUV, packed as tightly as a perfectly played Tetris game. She pulls out electric burners and what looks like a contractor's tool bag. You'd expect to be carrying hammers and drills. This 
is my sort of portable kit that goes with me everywhere. I'm gonna guess there's 200 different utensils, implements. I see tongs and torches and ring cutters and measuring cups and boards. She was on a different job yesterday, and that's typical, so she carries all of her tools with her. At least on this set, she gets a designated space for her work kitchen. That's because on this show, who lose good trouble, food drives some of the plot. Hey, doll, where's my mint? Come on, you can't hide out in the kitchen all night. You need to press the flesh. One character is opening a restaurant. Great opening, Dennis. Thank you for coming. Hey, nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. The food is fabulous. I've never been on a set before, so I'm fascinated. It's an industrial warehouse with half a dozen of what look like huge plywood boxes. Inside, they're completely realistic rooms, an office, a living room. Before they started filming here, this space was an empty shell. Melissa says you could see the ceiling insulation. Yeah, in order to make this happen, so many crafts, so many people touched all of this before you could even think about putting food into this set. So the set that we're walking into is a kitchen, and we have a scene coming up tomorrow where there's gonna be a little bit of chaos, but a lot of cooking. I've been in a lot of commercial kitchens, and this one looks so realistic. From food containers labeled with blue painter's tape to the rubber mats on the floor. Except it's not a real kitchen. Now, here's the one thing about a set. Um, It doesn't have practical lighting. Any light switches you see don't really work. So Melissa's using the light on her phone to examine the set. Tomorrow, actors will flip burgers and stir polenta, so Melissa's got to make sure everything is ready. I need to make sure that all of the uh, pots, pans, utensils, anything we need to to recreate uh, some cooking scenes are still in place. Okay. Melissa grew up in Burbank. She remembers seeing fans lining up to watch The Tonight Show being taped. My family was not involved in entertainment at all. My mom had sort of office jobs, and in fact, when I was little, she was a telephone operator. I don't even think that exists anymore. Um, I lived in a home with my stepfather, and he owned a printing company in North Hollywood. But the entertainment industry was all around. And there was a strike. Um, that happened when I was in high school, and it affected a lot of the families that I grew up with. And I remember saying to my family that I would never work in the entertainment industry because I never wanted to work in an industry where people were so expendable that nobody cared how many lives that these strikes could disrupt. And so I was never, ever, ever going to be in this industry. So how did it come to pass that Melissa, who never intended to join the entertainment industry, became a Hollywood food stylist? Well, first, she learned to cook out of necessity. I'm the oldest of three children, and my mom went back to work after after the third one was born. So even when she was a kid, Melissa helped her mom with a lot of the cooking. She learned to make things like... Tuna in white sauce with frozen mixed vegetables on toast. And there used to be something on the side of a Bisquick box that was like a taco pie. I remember making that when I was a kid. I ate a lot of casseroles growing up. Um... My mom was Japanese, and she was born in the relocation center. 
This is during World War II, when Japanese Americans were being sent to prison camps. Her family went to Colorado. So, you know, when she was little, there wasn't a lot of food in the camp. Then they came and they didn't have a lot of money when they got back to California. Casseroles were an easy way to stretch money, and Melissa got good at making them. She was a kid with a creative streak, growing up in a structured home. When I was in high school, I actually wanted to go to school for photography. And my parents said that I could do that as a hobby anytime I wanted. They wanted her to be prepared for a stable career. Culinary arts falls under the term arts, and it would not have been acceptable to my parents. So she studied biology and psychology. After college, she took cooking courses on the side, but she had steady jobs. She worked at an electrical engineering company. She drew blood. But after I went through all of these very, very structured fields, I realized that everything that I had done up to that point, what made me the happiest was something where I could be creative. It was while she was working at an advertising agency producing commercials that she first encountered a food stylist. I decided I was just going to do it part-time for a little while before I decided what I really wanted to do. And it turned out that I loved it, and here I am, I guess, almost 20 years later. Back in her work kitchen, Melissa demonstrates how cooking for the screen is a lot different than cooking at home. She roots around in a chest freezer. This is pizza dough for a scene that I need tomorrow. One, two, three, four, five. In the script, there's one pizza. How many does Melissa need to prep? Uh, We will probably, over the course of the day, do maybe 18 of these. 18 different pizzas. Right. They have to shoot the actor in all the stages of pizza making. So you'll see her grab a dough ball that's been proofed and looks amazing. Melissa will swap that out for dough that's been perfectly shaped and then you might see her start to sauce it. Uh, Then you might see it uh, finished but uncooked. Ready to go in the oven. At the very, very end of the scene, she will pull out like that perfect one pizza. And even for the shot of that one perfect pizza, Melissa will have made three or four just in case. She also has to make sure that food looks good, that it looks the same, take after take do our little test as to which of these are going to be the winner for sweet potato fries. So she's got the fryer going and four different brands of frozen sweet potato fries. Test number one, the organic sweet potato fries. And she'll leave these out for a couple of hours. Hmm. Those ones taste better. But these look the best. These look the best. So then we'll stop to see how they hold up. What's becoming clear to me is that a Hollywood food stylist needs a bizarre set of skills that go way beyond cooking. First, they've got to be organized. Even the simplest scene has many moving parts. Oh, Dad. Here's an example. One pivotal scene in the 2015 film, Love the Coopers, took place around a Christmas dinner table. I've been thinking about our family a lot today, and I have something that I'd like to say. Shooting lasted nine days. If I had to guess, we went through maybe 50 or 60 turkeys. There were full, perfect turkeys. Turkeys for carving, turkeys that fell on the floor, turkeys that the dog came close to, turkeys in the oven. There were a lot of turkeys, a lot, a lot of turkeys. And Melissa had to find them, buy them, store them, 
and cook them. Second, the food stylist also needs to be a nutritionist and a problem solver. That same scene in Love the Coopers. Let's just dig in. Yes. Go ahead. It was uh, yeah. Diane Keaton and John Goodman and Alan Arkin and Marissa Tomei and Jake Lacey. And when you went around the table, it was a vegetarian but loves cheese, a vegan that also doesn't do sugar or sugar substitutes, um, uh, other people who ate no carbs. You have to make sure that, uh, you know, you've made something that everybody can eat. Third, they're often technical advisors, making sure kitchens on set seem real to viewers, like organizing a fictional restaurant's fridge according to safety regulations. Raw meat is, you know, on a bottom level and not sitting on top of produce that isn't next to eggs that's sitting next to pastries. But the, the highlights of, of my career are the times when I've been able to do something that is like so amplified. Like making food for imaginary worlds. You can give her blood now. Her body should accept it. Sookie, can you hear me? You must drink. On the vampire drama True Blood, Melissa's first task was to concoct a substance worthy of the show's title, a drink that actors could gulp down that also looked and functioned like blood. So it had to leave a trail when it went down the glass. It had to have the right viscosity. It couldn't just look like juice or wine. And so I'm using a little bit of wheatgrass to give it the like opaqueness that it needed. Mixing in pomegranate cherry juice to get the right color and a decent taste. It was like a little, you know, chemistry experiment in the kitchen. And for developing foods for science fiction shows, Melissa has to imagine entire worlds. The food can't look like anything that we've seen here. Enough food. Go help with the patrol. Take this scene from the series Boba Fett, part of the Star Wars universe. You're the head of a family. You should enjoy the trappings. Have some food. There was an amazing feast that sat on a 30-foot-long table. That's 30 feet of fantasy food to create. And you went by, you know, creatures that had been roasted. Including a roasted Nuna, a swamp turkey from the planet Naboo. It was really awesome because I was able to work with the prop master to come up with a Nuna skeleton and skin that I could work with. But then I filled it with turkey meat so that it looked like the meat was just coming off in layers. And you really get the idea that these came from, you know, another planet. In the hands of a stylist like Melissa, food becomes a character on screen. It can help set a scene. Evoking a time period as she did with the 1960s on Mad Men. When you see a tomato aspic or a salmon mousse, it'll take you back to something you're, in my case, that my grandmother did. It can help set the mood. It's party food, it's jovial, it's very upscale. It can mirror the personality of a character, like a meticulous assassin who also bakes with precision. One glance at a plate and a viewer should get a sense of the person in the scene with it. Is it a really beautiful plate, but it's a little bit cold. It's a little bit minimalistic. It takes a lot of labor to make the shimmering fantasy Hollywood sells the world. And there are a lot of people like Melissa whose work is largely invisible. You know, 
I guess I wish people knew that the the job existed, that the food didn't just miraculously, (laughs) you know, appear on the plate. For the California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse in Santa Clarita. By the way, Melissa McSorley tells us she knows she's luckier than a lot of people in the entertainment industry right now. She's pivoting, doing food styling for commercials, print ads, and social media campaigns. She's also recipe testing, and on days she can't work in food, she's helping curate items for estate sales. Lisa's series, California Foodways, is supported by California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And that's it for our show this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. If you're a fan of the in-depth stories we bring you, subscribe to our podcast, The California Report Magazine. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really helps. Our interim senior editor is Katrina Schwartz. Susie Racho is our producer director. And Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. Olivia Zhao is our intern. And I'm Sasha Koka. This is The California Report Magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.